If you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, it is fitting. We didn't plan it this way, but Sneel and I both separately prepared our sermons for this Sunday uh, and for Good Friday. Uh, both came to these passages in Matthew 27 and, and 28, and so I'll be picking up where he left off this morning, uh, looking at the Great Commission. So will be Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, but before we come to God's Word, let us go to him in prayer. Father, you have the power to raise dead men back to life, and so we know that you have the power to awaken dull, sleepy hearts and to sharpen probably tired minds. If we have been rightly feasting today, come tonight, maybe dull of senses. And so we pray that you would help us, that we might hear your word and that your spirit would rightly apply it to our hearts and that we would be edified in this time together. So we ask for your help, knowing that you can give it. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Obviously, the resurrection is a big deal for the church. I don't think that is an understatement. Uh, Easter is the high point of the church calendar. Historically, the church has moved its corporate gathering for worship from the Sabbath on Saturday to the Lord's Day on Sunday to celebrate the reality of the resurrection. And so as I considered what to preach on this evening, I wanted to choose a text that that I thought helped us think about how the resurrection applies and helps shape the rest of our lives. Again, we, we have this big celebration every Easter morning. We have lunches and brunches and meals with family celebrating this day. And here we come, the evening as food is digesting and the weekend's rejoicing begins to fade. So now what? What difference does the resurrection make for the rest of our lives? And so I said to come and choose this passage on the Great Commission. And when we think about the Great Commission, or at least when I think about it, maybe you're like me, 
I tend to think about this passage in Matthew 28 in isolation from the rest of Matthew's gospel, at least in isolation from its immediate context. I think we've heard so many sermons or exhortations about what it means to fulfill the Great Commission and the impetus for the church to go and make disciples of all nations. We tend to think of this text as standing on its own. That's not how Matthew intended us to read it. The way Matthew recounts this story, this command, this great commission is given as an immediate response to the disciples encountering the resurrected Christ. It comes right on the heels of all that we read on Good Friday and all that we read this morning. The the gospel account just flows right from resurrection into great commission. It's not separated from the rest of the account. And now we do know that from the other accounts of the gospels that this wasn't the first time Jesus appeared to his disciples. In fact, we know that he appeared to them on Sunday night in the evening as they were gathered together. But Matthew wants to show us that apparently, for some reason, Jesus, after appearing to them on Sunday evening, directs them to go to Galilee. And and I'll explain later on why I think that's the case. But, But Matthew is blending these accounts together because he wants us to see that this sending out of the disciples, this great commission, is a direct result of the reality of our resurrected Savior. And so as we consider that fact, that the Great Commission is a direct result of the resurrection, I have three points that I want us to look at. First, that the resurrection causes worship. Second, that the resurrection confirms Jesus' ministry. And third, the resurrection compels the Great Commission. It causes worship, confirms Jesus' ministry, and compels the Great Commission. So we'll take those in order. And the first point will be brief because it really is summarized uh, or summarizing much of what Neil talked about this morning. See the women encountering Jesus as he's raised from the dead, falling at his feet and worshiping him. That their first response as they see the resurrected Lord is worship. And the disciples, likewise, as they encounter the resurrected Lord, they fall on their faces and worship because their eyes are finally fully opened to the reality of who Jesus really is. This indeed is God with us, Emmanuel. And they've seen that now as he has been raised from the dead in glory. And if he is God, then what does he deserve other than our wholehearted worship? That is the disciples' response as they see Jesus. But then Matthew tells us that then they doubted. He says, some doubted. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament is actually in Matthew chapter 14, when Peter is walking on water. 
coming out to meet the Lord in the storm. And as Peter sees the wind and the waves, he becomes afraid and he begins to sink and he cries out to Jesus. And as Jesus brings him back into the boat, he rebukes Peter saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's the same word. And this doubt is expressing some sort of fear or hesitation. A fear or hesitation to completely accept the fact that Jesus has complete authority over the wind and the waves. And here now, it is a fear and hesitation to accept the fact that he has complete authority over death. It seems that at least early on in his appearing to his disciples, there was some mixture of belief and doubt, of faith and fear, of worship and hesitation, thinking that this is too good to believe. Is this really happening? Now, some commentators, as they read this account, that they do everything they can to minimize the scope of the doubting that is mentioned. Some will translate it to mean that some doubt it as the ESV does. And, and it's maybe an accurate translation, but it could also mean that they all had doubt. Some will say that, oh, there must have been others up on that mountain. The disciples, the 11, they wouldn't have doubted. It must have been when Jesus appeared to the 500 as well. And there were others who were doubting, but the disciples, they remained faithful. But this doubt, this, this hesitation that Matthew mentions, I, I don't actually think should be all that troubling for us to read. That as the disciples are once again encountering the risen Lord, that there's some hesitation, some uncertainty about what it is that they are witnessing. Think, these, these 11 men have not exactly had the best track record in terms of their awareness and their faithfulness in this gospel. Even as Pastor Neil showed us this morning, they weren't expecting a resurrection even after Jesus told them there would be a resurrection. So why, as their faithlessness throughout the Gospels has been recounted, why all of a sudden, at the most miraculous and the most astonishing point of the narrative, do we expect them to have responded perfectly? I sure don't. It is no wonder that they're seeing Jesus, they're worshiping, and there's some measure of questioning. Could this be true? Or are we just imagining things? They had just seen Jesus crucified and buried, and now he's appearing to them all over the place. They're filled with wonder, thinking, can it be? Is our Lord really risen? Which seems that Matthew is actually anticipating this same skepticism from his readers. Again, he's not necessarily writing for Christians who are going to be doing a Bible study or preaching on this 2,000 years later. Though, though again, all the caveats to that statement, the Bible is God's inspired word for us to study and preach. 
But one of Matthew's intentions is that he's writing to the Jews of his own day, writing to convince them that this story really happened, that it was true. Jews that had heard the rumblings about Jesus, that were now getting account of his life and his ministry, hearing his disciples are saying that he's been raised from the dead. And as they're recounting this gospel narrative, at this point in the story, they're probably thinking, no way. Raised from the dead, really, Matthew? That's a little far-fetched. And I think what Matthew is telling them is, yeah, we all thought the same thing. We all thought this was too good to be true as well, but we really saw him raised from the dead, and so we fell on our faces even in the midst of our doubt, and we worshiped. We saw him, we talked with him, we touched him, we ate with him, and we worshiped him because he really was risen from the dead. I think Matthew's trying to show his readers, yeah, I understand that you may be skeptical, but we really did see him. And maybe some of us have doubts too. Doubts, this is too good to be true. Yeah, maybe Jesus was real, but, but surely these miraculous things, this raising from the dead, that couldn't have happened. Or maybe you have doubts. Okay, yeah, he raised from the dead, but is he really raised for me? Does he love me? Is his work paid for my sins? Or have I just done too much for him to accept me? Maybe we also have doubts. And as we recount in this story, what moves the disciples from a place of doubt and hesitation to a posture of worship? How do they get from there to here? And it's actually nothing that they themselves do. It is what Jesus does. Jesus comes to them and he speaks in such a way as to remove those doubts, to confer, yes, this really is me. I really am raised from the dead. It is Jesus moving towards them and speaking to them, which then reminds us of our second point from this sermon, that the resurrection confirms Jesus's ministry. And there are three parts to this encounter in Matthew 28 that confirm the ministry of Jesus. And by his ministry, I mean his authority, his, his role as a shepherd of his people, his, his mission. All of who he is and what he taught is being confirmed in the resurrection. And I'm going to bet you a dollar that you can guess what the first part of this encounter I'm going to mention first is. He comes to him and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He, he's confirming his authority. Jesus has just made bold, as bold of claims as you can make all throughout his earthly ministry. Claims of divinity. Claims to be the son of God. And as he walked this earth, and as he went through his ministry, 
as he's making these bold claims, he is gaining an opposition thinking what you're uttering is absolute blasphemy, right? That that's what led the chief priests to want to crucify Jesus. He's claiming to be the son of God, and they're thinking, there's no way you deserve to die. But the resurrection is proof that Christ, his life, his teaching, and his death, all that he said and did was indeed accepted by God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I think, why does Paul say that the resurrection declares Jesus's sonship? It's because if Jesus is not who he says he is, then he is blaspheming God and he deserves to die and deserves to stay dead. But God raised him by his power, which means that all that Jesus said and did was acceptable and pleasing to God. Therefore, what Jesus said and did was true. The resurrection is confirming, yes, this really is God's son. And for a few short days, everything that the disciples had believed about the Messiah, about Jesus, about his proclamation of the kingdom, about their commitment to it, all of that had fallen apart. Their hope was dead. And three days later, it rises from the tomb as Jesus declares to them, yes, I am God and I have authority. And I think maybe our hope, your hope, has been waning lately, just like the disciples. Maybe it just feels like your life is beginning to fall apart as well. Just the stress of going through each day just feels too much to bear. And you're thinking, is this guy I've been following, is my Lord really my Lord? Is he really for me? Can he really handle all of life's difficulties, all of my stresses, all of my doubts? If that's you, you need to hear the same declaration that the disciples heard. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen, and he has been given all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. It is true. All authority has been given to your Lord. And he's not just risen. He's not just sitting on his throne far off and disinterested in what happens to you. What is he saying? The close of the Great Commission, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Think it is one thing to have a risen Messiah. It is another to have an ever-present, attentive, sympathetic Savior who promises to never leave you. 
Right? It's one thing to think, yeah, Jesus died and raised and, and conquered the grave. But if he doesn't love me, if he's not for me, what does it matter? But what does he say to his disciples? Again, he, he comes to them and says, no, I am with you. I have all authority and I am yours and you are mine. He doesn't say, I've taught you what you need to know. And now you, you just do your best to serve me. And, and I'm going to sit up in heaven. I'll just watch and see how things go. But we have to grasp the importance of this assurance. Everywhere that we are, every difficulty we face, every time we're being maligned, every time we have to resist temptation and fight sin, every time we're seeking to fulfill the Great Commission and preach the gospel, that Christ, by His Spirit, is with us. He is ministering to us. He is empowering us. He has not left us for all time. And so often, we go through each and every day saying, you know what, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm going to do this on my own. I can handle this. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I can solve this problem. I'll go through the motions maybe on Sunday morning, but, but I've got this. What do I need to pray about this for? I, I can handle it. Brothers and sisters, as, as we are bearing just the burdens of the weight of life. Jesus says, I'm yours. I'm with you. All we need to do is say one simple prayer and say, Jesus, this is hard. Would you please help me? He is there to minister to us, to empower us, to embolden us, to strengthen us, to carry us through. And all we have to do is just turn to him. Cry out for help. And we have that help because Jesus isn't still in a grave in Jerusalem. He is risen so that he can be with us. What a comfort that is. What a confirmation that is to God's people. Third, we see that Jesus, his ministry, his ministry is confirmed by where all of this takes place. I said I'd come back to this. But remember, this isn't the first time Jesus appears to his disciples. He does that Sunday evening in Jerusalem. Galilee is many, many miles away. But Matthew in this gospel is making a point to show us that Jesus wants his disciples in Galilee. He tells the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. So the disciples, they, they go to Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus has directed them. Matthew recounts that again here in verse 16. And think, why is Matthew making a point to tell us where it is that Jesus is meeting the disciples? Why is he going to great lengths to show us this? Well, think about what's important about Galilee. Well, this is where Jesus begins his ministry. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And then from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So he's up in Galilee, beginning his ministry. He's in Galilee calling his disciples to himself. And then chapter 4, verse 23, that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, pains, oppressed by the demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then Matthew chapter 5, after all of this, is seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And we know what comes next. He opened his mouth and he began to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Where is that taking place? In Galilee. This is where Jesus begins his ministry, and it is where he ends his ministry with his disciples before he sends them out. It is on the mountain in Galilee that Jesus delivers the most authoritative sermon ever preached at the start of his ministry. And it is on the mountain in Galilee that he reveals the most authoritative act ever performed. See, meeting the disciples here is meant to remind them and to remind us as the readers of Matthew's gospel that all that Jesus taught, and it is to confer the truthfulness of that message. And we just spent, I don't know, a number of months, 20 some odd sermons preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. All of that, Jesus is bringing them back to this mountain. Could be the same mountain, doesn't need to be for us to get the point. He's bringing them back to Galilee, up on the mountain, to remind them everything that I've taught you about the kingdom, everything that I've called you to in terms of your righteousness, your holiness, your entrance into the kingdom, how you live as citizens of it, all of that, it is true. You need to be reminded of that, and now I'm going to send you out being reminded of its truthfulness that you might now make disciples of all nations. If this were a sports movie, this is where the down-and-out pro returns to his hometown to find where he first fell in love with the game so he can make one last run at the championship. Or if it was a superhero movie, it's where the beaten-down hero has a flashback to all of his cherished memories with his loved ones so that he can find the strength to go and defeat the villain. That's what's happening here. Think of the disciples. After their desertion, after all of their doubting, the risen Jesus brings the disciples here to this mountain in Galilee to stoke their confidence in him. And as we're going to see, to then be able to send them out with, out with renewed hope so they can proclaim the same good news of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus began preaching at the beginning of his ministry. Third, we see that the resurrection compels the Great Commission. After Jesus has reminded his disciples 
of his authority, we read, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Think, no authority, no continued presence. There is no mission. Without those two things, the Great Commission doesn't get fulfilled. The disciples would have remained scattered. They would have remained afraid and helpless, hiding from the Jews that they might hunt them down, continuing to deny. I didn't know that man. No, I wasn't one of the 11. But here on this mountain, with their renewed confidence, Jesus sends them out with the Great Commission. And so as we close then, I want to reflect on the nuances of the Great Commission and think, how are we meant to carry it out today? Now, Chase isn't here, so I'm going to tease him. Uh, he, he really wants me to emphasize this next point to you. And not really, but we were joking earlier that it seems like every sermon that we hear preached on the Great Commission or every book you read on it, Every preacher wants to make this point. The Great Commission, the structure of it is that there's really one command, one imperative that's to make disciples that's then modified by three uh, participles, the going, the baptizing, and the teaching to obey. And so we were joking. Uh, he told me, don't mention that. And I said, well, you're not in charge. Uh, but it, it is true that almost every sermon you hear mentions that. And I think Every sermon you hear should mention that because understanding that structure actually helps us to better understand what Jesus wants us to do in the Great Commission. It's a, it's a helpful point to know that the main command is make disciples. These aren't just a string of separate commands and we just kind of do all of them and muddle through them. No, there, there's one directive, one thing that we ought to have on our mind as we fulfill the Great Commission, that is disciple making. And then Jesus shows us and clarifies that this is what it looks like to make disciples, but disciple making is the aim. Now, we need to be careful, though, that we don't hear that command and, and mistake the command to make disciples as a command for discipleship. What do I mean by this? Follow along. Discipleship, as we think of it, is the process of training and teaching younger believers to help them grow in their faith and their sanctification, and in maturity. That, that's what, when we hear discipleship, what we tend to think of in the church. It's a process of maturity. And that is a right and a good and a necessary task for the church to participate in. That's something I think we as a church take very seriously, the discipleship of younger believers growing them up in the faith. If a church isn't doing discipleship, they are being unfaithful as a church. But while discipleship, as I've explained it, is necessary for faithfulness, it is not sufficient. Because when Jesus tells us to make disciples, 
What he's telling us is to make Christians. We are to go, so going, make, we're to go and to proclaim the message of the gospel, the same message of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed on the very mountain where he's giving this command. We're to go and proclaim that gospel. It is gospel proclamation to the lost that Jesus is calling us to. And then as men and women and children are coming to hear and believe that they're brought into the church, they're given the sign of communion in the body through baptism. They're marked out as members of the community of faith, and they're taught to obey all of Jesus's commands. They're discipled. They're raised up into maturity. But Jesus is saying it doesn't, it isn't just the sanctification work that the church is to be a part of. It is the gospel proclaiming work that we're to be a part of as well. And as people hear, we raise them up in the faith. That is what he means when he says make disciples. And so we have a tremendous task set before us. From the teaching of the faith to our covenant children, to evangelizing our neighbors and coworkers, to reaching the campus just a few miles away, and to reaching the rest of the world with the gospel. We as God's people, as a church seeking to be faithful to Christ's teaching, cannot be indifferent to the need for people to hear about the resurrected Christ. And when they come to faith, when they inevitably believe, because God is the one doing this work, he's calling us to participate in it, but he's the one doing the work and he is committed to this work. And so as we proclaim, as they believe, we cannot be indifferent about the need to raise them up into maturity and obedience. Gospel proclamation discipleship and sanctification. They go hand in hand. And this is a call for every Christian. It's not just a command to the disciples. It's not just a command now to your pastors and your elders. Not just a command to full-time evangelists and missionaries. We are all commanded to fulfill the Great Commission by making Christ known. And I bet a lot of us got a little uncomfortable, a little squirmy in our seat. That sounds scary, right? Evangelism sounds really hard and really scary. We get nervous when we think about having to tell people about Jesus. Think, is my boss going to bring me into his office? Because there's people that get mad at work that I follow Jesus and I want to talk to them about it? Are my neighbors going to not invite me over to their homes any longer once I invite them to church? When I begin talking to people, how am I going to answer their objections? I don't know everything. What if I don't say the right thing? I think I have felt every one of those fears. I, I still feel those fears. But, but let me, as we close tonight, encourage you just 
two easy things to remember as we think about beginning the process of fulfilling the Great Commission. If you feel like you want to do evangelism, but you just you don't know where to start, it, it just seems hard and scary. You just I have no idea what I'm doing. First, let, let me just encourage you and remind you, you don't need to hit home runs with every conversation. Think you're just trying to get on base. That was good advice given to young preachers in seminary. Just you know, not every sermon is a home run. You just need to get on base. Sometimes you just need to get hit by a pitch. I won't ask you what my sermons are, but as you're proclaiming the gospel to your neighbors, to your friends, your coworkers, your family, you're not trying to just hit grand slams every time and just there's 3,000 coming to faith every day when you step out your door. You are just trying to get on base. You can go a long way with just even saying hello to people, asking them about their life and asking them, you know, sounds like you got a lot going on. Can I just kind of pray for you? Just start there. Just getting your foot in the door, getting on base. Then as you get to know people, you can maybe start to ask more questions. Begin pressing in a little bit. Begin sharing the hope that you have. But so often, we let the fear and the anxiety of thinking, I've got to have the perfect conversation so that when I share the gospel, this person's coming to faith today. And we get all this fear and anxiety, and that keeps us from ever saying anything at all. Think, the process of evangelism, students coming to this church pretty regularly now. Many of them, as they're coming to faith, it is a long journey, hearing the gospel over and over and over again, till the Lord begins working in their heart. She's not trying to hit home runs. Just start by getting on base. Second, and obviously I think much more important, as we need to remember what Jesus told his disciples when he gave them this commission. What did he say? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he says, behold, I am with you always. Think, who was the first preacher of the kingdom? Who faced the fiercest opposition to his ministry and to this message? Who stared down death itself and allowed it to take him so that he might suffer for his enemies and save them? Who overcame death and reigns in power and authority? And who is with us to continue the mission that he gave us in the first place that he began and commands us to participate in. It is Jesus. This is his mission. He is the one doing the work, calling us to participate alongside of him. He has authority to do the work. He is always with us as we share the message that he has given. Think of what Paul told Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul's in prison. He is about to be put 
to death. He tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. I think Timothy is just got to be afraid. What's going to happen to him? If they can come for my spiritual father, they can come for me. What's, what's going to happen once Paul is gone? And Paul gives him this reminder. And why does he remind Timothy of the resurrection? Right? Remember Jesus risen from the dead. Well, he goes on a few verses later to say that if we died with him, then we will live with him. He has the power over the grave. So says, Timothy, they kill me. Guess what? I'm going to be raised. They kill you. Guess what? You're going to be raised because your Savior has been raised. That is the worst the world can do to you as you share the gospel. 99.999% of you probably will not be put to death for your faith. Maybe somebody's going to go somewhere. So the worst that's going to happen to us is we'll be mocked, we'll be ridiculed, we'll have people object to us. Paul says, remember Christ, risen from the dead. He has overcome everything that we could possibly face. And he says, remember the offspring of David. It's curious. Why does he say that? Well, again, later on, he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. He's sitting on the throne of David. He, David was the king. Now Jesus is sitting on that throne, the eternal king, the one that David was just a mere shadow pointing towards. And so saying, Jesus is resurrected, sitting in heaven, reigning on his throne. And if we endure, we too will reign with him. He is risen and he reigns. He is in control. The resurrection has provided all of the hope that we need to fulfill the Great Commission. Therefore, we can be bold in our witness. Think, what does the Easter have to do with the Great Commission? It is the fuel for all that we do in the Great Commission. Paul tells Timothy, Matthew tells us, Jesus calls us to behold your Christ risen from the tomb. Fall at his feet in worship and know that he has been placed at the right hand of God in all power and all authority. And we then go confidently to tell the world and to make disciples. Let us pray. What good news this is. A good news that we rejoice in and celebrate in, but a good news that then compels us to go out into the world and make Christ known. And so we pray that as we comprehend the glory of the resurrection, as we worship our risen Lord, that we would be empowered and emboldened to tell the world 
about that, Lord. Oh, would you help us to do this? We pray that we would be faithful to the Great Commission, faithful to your mission for your church. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.